Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just coming up to 4 o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time. Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until 6 o'clock. Today, the Gene Ethics Network report with the director, Bob Phelps. Also a report on Western Sahara following the meeting in the desert of the Secretary-General of the United Nations with the refugees living in Algerian camps. One of 3CR's first broadcasts back in 1976, The Concrete Gang with Ian Bolton. Part one of a story of Cathy Kelly, a US peace activist, and a visit to the Middle East, looking at Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan and Israel with Mary Rabenik, who was part of a, a study tour to the area. But first, let's have Mr Kevin Healy and see what sort of a week he's had. A week, Jane Lister, when big end of town law firm Free Kills the Workers' Partner no, no, correction, former partner, now totally independent minister for coshing the workers, Michaela Kosh the workers, exposed her newfound independence by backing a, wait for it, wait for it, a workers' struggle. Michaela, indeed encouraging, almost organising workers to take to the streets. Therefore, it must be a protected action. As totally independent minister for coshing the workers, let me assure you the government backs 100% your campaign for lower wages and even worse conditions. I urge you to bring your rigs, bring your trucks to Canberra and we will show the evil unions they have no right to impose higher wages on workers and more costly, costly, costly conditions like safety, costly, costly, unnecessary safety which would cripple your poor, caring employers. Michaela said higher wages and costly, costly conditions would lead to family breakdowns, suicides, bankruptcies, an attack on all true blue Aussie families, on mum and dad investors, well, you name the evil, the social disaster, and higher wages would guarantee it. And to think there are people who reckon the government doesn't care about workers, doesn't support them. Uh, but most of these uh, owner-drivers make stuff all, Michaela, uh, lots less than employees working in the industry. And they have every right to fight for even less stuff all. The Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal, which made this irresponsible nation-threatening decision had to be, has successfully been wiped out, Michaela and the team declared. It's the Road Safety and the remuneration bits we object to. Michaela fingered the problem. But the current safety laws strike a necessary and sensible balance between the interests of the caring employers and the interests of the evil union and workers. And the workers, the the contractors you're organising. I said higher wages would lead to suicides. Do you you want to kill all these wonderful mum and dad true blue Aussies? Speaking of wonderful true blue Aussies, this hullabaloo over poor old Clive Palmer Gina getting his company finances a bit mixed up with his personal finances and his personal political party, of which he does seem to be the only member these days, personal political party's finances, what a load of nonsense. 
Clive is just doing what he knows is the right thing to do. Parliament, parliamentary politics exist to serve the caring business class. So poor Clive was, is, doing no more than ensuring maintenance of the status quo, including the obvious corollary that the government has a responsibility to pay his workers, meet their entitlements. They're entitled to that money, and I expect the government to meet its responsibilities. You can't blame me if someone drained the company of all its funds. Uh, but, but it was you. Are you suggesting I'm a someone? I am not a someone, so you can't blame me. And the company would be solvent if the evil state socialist government had given me the billions I asked for. Why don't you have the guts to put the blame where it belongs? To make matters worse, there's talk that poor Clive should be charged with some sort of criminal offence for just doing what government and business do, which in this case at least the evil state socialist government didn't do. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if Clive wound up in the slammer? Thankfully, the chances of that are very slight, a fraction of a milli, 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 millimetre above nil. Unlike any of those unemployed bludgers in Townsville wondering where the next meal and mortgage payment are coming from, if they took some silly industrial action which would deserve the harshest of punishment. Because again, it is the role of government to protect caring employers from such disrespected lawlessness like protecting the poor banks from these continued unwarranted attacks, unrelentingly attacked for just doing what banks do, rorting and ripping off. And despite their commitment to fierce competition, the big four agreed they must in responding to the regulator who feels there may just be the odd problem with their culture, and as we pointed out last week, we see no problem, we just assume their culture is rorting and ripping off. In responding must point to the centrality of the banking customer as we seek to enhance risk culture. After all, the customer is 100% central to rorting and ripping off. Now, does anyone think for one second that that repository of responsible nailing the big issues news, Channel Nong, would pay for a scoop as kids are kidnapped in Beirut and a grandmother bashed by some incompetence, not hired by Channel Nong, and the Channel Nong team who went there for the kidnap, but according to Channel Nong, didn't bother to film it, just stood there. Well, that's believable. Their presence was obviously purely altruistic and for moral support. Still, when they get the chance to interview their own interviewer about the horrors of the uncivilised Lebanese legal system, we can be sure they'll recoup several times over the thousands they didn't spend for the exclusive coverage. And on justice, and here's another group of workers, Michaela and Malcolm and the team would support, our highly revered... Sorry, are forces of law and order and their serious work safety issues supported this week by that international fighter for working people, Lord Rupert of Wapping. The back-breaking array of equipment they have to carry around, including their ballistic vests so they can shoot people without being injured themselves, their radio, their spare magazine for the ammunition they need for the pistol so they can shoot people, their capsicum spray, their taser, their handcuffs and their baton, all necessary to maintain law and order, to carry out their important normal police duties, shooting people, spraying them to ensure a bit of breathing and 
tired, respiratory-related problems for the unlawful, electrifying them, the fun, fun, fun of watching them shake and collapse, a million laughs, and then laying into them with the baton, make sure you draw blood, maybe a few little kicks with your sharpened boots, before dragging them back to your workplace to frame them for, say, resisting arrest and assaulting you. I'm always fascinated when someone winds up with the sole charge of, you know, like, resisting arrest. Apparently resisting being arrested for resisting arrest. Turn the Lord Rupert of Wapping scene page and bang. Story warning where their safety issue leads. Members of the elite special operations group, they're the ones who look like military and we thank goodness they're there to protect us every time we see them being paramilitary with their military trained killer equipment. Members of have been taking growth hormones, anabolic steroids, that sort of thing, showing even these brave sons of God as they are known need to build up their bodies to carry all that lethal equipment needed to protect our liberties. Bravely breaking the law to ensure they uphold the law. Uphold the right, as their motto says, uh, which is far more accurate. Notice the State Department of Jobs. It has a longer title, but Jobs comes into it. Department of Jobs, which presumably is about creating jobs, plans to sack, sorry, suddenly let go, heaps of its own staff. While on apparent contradictions, because we know there are no real contradictions in capitalism in the greatest little economic order of them all, the chainsaw, the forest industry, wants wood waste from its chainsaw in the forests to be used to produce electricity. Bit of added value for them. Why throw away potential profit? This is a massive opportunity for us to increase the amount of renewable energy to move away from traditional carbon-intensive energy sources to cleaner, greener energy, the true blue Aussie chainsaw the Forest Products Association claimed. What good news? Chainsawing the forests is now environmentally sensitive, greener. And as our American friends would say, turns waste into greener greenbacks. There was a marketing and media report about complaints from subscribers to a new television streaming service set up by NBC Universal that technical hitches had prevented them from streaming Keeping Up with the Kardashians and The Real Housewives. I would have thought they should get letters of appreciation and heartfelt thanks. Finally, Back to the government supporting good, good workers happy to fight for lower wages and poorer conditions. Yesterday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, P1 Picky, Malcolm looking happy, laughing, standing in front of a truck, sign on the bull bar, let my dad do what he loves. I share that with that good, good pro-True Blue Aussie worker, uh, a contractor. I, I love being big supremo. Voters, let me do what I love. On which reminds me, election. How could we forget such excitement? The Canberra Press Gallery and its triennial election orgasmic orgy. Will it be Malcolm, they say? Will it be little Billy? Please, please, we say in our triennial election on we, can't it be none of the above? If only, listener, if only. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And you can say good morning to Mr Kevin Healy tomorrow at 9am for his City Limits program, which goes for one 
hour. What motivates a person to devote their life to fighting injustices in the world, being abroad or at home, serving prison sentences for breaking unjust laws, risking their lives in war zones? These and others are the questions I'll seek to find answers to in this interview with American peace activist and author Kathy Kelly, who has, since 2000, been nominated three times for a Nobel Peace Prize. I spoke with her not long after her return from her latest, her 22nd visit to Afghanistan. Kathy, who were the main influences on you growing up in Chicago, which laid the foundations for your lifelong activism? I think I was very influenced by religious women who taught me at the Catholic elementary school that I attended. They were a cheerful group, as I recall, and they shared everything in common. They all wore the same clothes. They lived in very similar rooms. They acquired no personal wealth. They earned no income. And they seemed reasonably pleased with what they were doing. Now, I'm sure I was only seeing, you know, one tiny slice of of their life living as women in a convent. But uh, it certainly said to me that in terms of the role models who were most influential in my life, earning an income or acquiring personal wealth or having flashy belongings was just simply negligible. And I felt happy about that. I can't quite explain why that seemed to suit where my own comfort level would end up resting, but that has been the case. So I'm very glad for that influence. They made it seem quite normal. Now, my generation, I don't think, followed up on what sisters did. You know, we may have listened to what sisters said when we were kids, but most of the people in my generation growing up in my own neighborhood, you know, went on to to look very intently for security that would be based on being able to consume lots of resources and own lots of things. But uh, I think I did turn out to be a bit different in that regard. What about home life and your parents and siblings? My parents were um, very careful to make sure that we would feel secure. Dad was earning a Catholic high school teacher's salary, which at the time when I was young was $4,000 a year, not a very handsome salary. Uh, But we never had any idea that our parents were struggling financially. We always felt that we were secure in terms of having enough to eat and having plenty of shelter. And ours was a modest home in an upper-lower class or maybe lower-middle-class neighborhood. We barely knew problems existed. I did begin to wonder a lot about my parents' experiences in World War II because they had both been in London and during the Blitz of London. And uh, they were shocked, I remember, uh, when they began to realize, as they were living in Chicago, the extent of horror in terms of the concentration camps and the displacements and the bereavements that were part of World War II. And I I knew that both of my parents had a, a horror of warfare. But they didn't raise us to think that we had a responsibility to do something about issues that were wrong, that that harmed other people. Um, I think for my mother, there was more of a sense of fatalism. Or as I would put it, I remember my mother's admonition, now don't stay acting too big for your britches. We weren't to call attention to ourselves or at all be part from status quo in my mom's view. 
My dad was a pretty thoughtful man and well-read, and I think that his conscience was very troubled, for instance, by the Vietnam War. But uh, again, there was that sense of caution uh, not to be drawing too much attention to yourself. Religion was a big part of your growing up. Was liberation theology part of that? Well, I, I would say that by the time I was in my college years, I mostly value my undergraduate and graduate study as kind of a placeholder that kept me from getting involved in, you know, some other path, or, you know, remember the paths I might have gone down. But I'm glad that I didn't start making decisions about what I might try to do with my life, with whatever resources I did have, with growth studies took me until a bit later in life, and then I was very, very influenced by liberation theology. I, I was living with a, a, a BBM sister who'd gone off to Nicaragua, and I went to visit her in Nicaragua and became, well, in fact, I was able to join a fast with Miguel Descoto, who was the Merino foreign minister. He was a Merino priest and a foreign minister in Nicaragua, and he had undertaken several very dynamic nonviolent civil resistance type actions to resist the United States aid for the Contras who were in Nicaragua at the time. And and then in my own neighborhood we were we were very, very affected by the idea that we had responsibility to care for the needs of our own neighbors. I had moved up to the poorest neighborhood in Chicago and people needed food and they needed shelter and they they needed friendship. They needed sort of a, a, a human personal touch because they were living many of them under very, very harsh circumstances. While so much money was being poured into, during the Cold War, military buildup of nuclear weapons and conventional weapons and a, you know, a constant composition to people in the United States that we were greatly threatened by people in the Soviet Union. So it was a time when you could see the United States government using people in other countries, particularly Central American countries, as proxies for their own cold warrior struggles. And uh, I began to be quite convinced that this wasn't something I ever, ever wanted to support. And so I became a war tax refuser soon after I had uh, graduated from college and begun teaching. Can I take you back to Nicaragua for a couple of minutes? The Sandinistas were in power, the Contras were operating. It was a very violent time. Yes, it certainly was a time when people who lived in areas where the Contras might make these very predatory attacks were vulnerable. I had gone up to a, a small village called San Juan de Limay on the northern border of Nicaragua, and Contras had come into the village and had kidnapped 24 people and killed them. And so the village was reeling. They were trying to figure out, you know, how would they take care of the orphans and to what extent would they be able to kind of reconstruct all of the uh, infrastructure, civil society projects that they had been advancing. And the Marinol sisters were trying very, very hard to, um, to help sustain what a combination of liberation, theology, and community development had created. And, and meanwhile, the United States was trying to sustain and beef up the Contra forces. Miguel Descoto impressed me greatly because he undertook a lengthy fast. I uh, accompanied him for 14 days of the fast and then um, was asked to take on a role doing sort of uh, secretarial work because there were so many people all across Central America, Mexico, South America, who were sending their greetings and expressing their 
for solidarity. It was a time when I think many simple people, many of them peasants, were hoping that they might achieve a more dignified way of life, that they might be able to form unions and get meaningful wages for their work. And they knew that they needed a lot of assistance and protection. And there were many dedicated people who wanted to help give that. And many of them were linked up with the Catholic Church at the time. Today I just read the obituary for Fernando Cagnal, one of the Cagnal brothers who had been so important for Nicaragua, uh, Ernesto and Fernando Cardinal, in championing the causes of peasant people. And uh, the Pope of the Catholic Church had um, disparaged what they were doing and tried to shame them, but that didn't deter them. And there were many, many communities all across Latin America that were developing the Misa Campesina, the uh, Liberation Theology Mass, the community gatherings that would look at scripture and try to apply these ideas that they were gaining to their own situation, their own setting in life. And I think that was a good thing. I think it bolstered a great deal of solidarity, both in Central America, but then beyond into North America, South America. So that was a wonderful time for me personally to believe that uh, changes were possible and that solidarity could make a difference. And as I look at where the United States eventually did intervene, I think we helped prevent U.S. intervention in Central America. But when I look at where we did intervene, in the Middle East and in Central Asia, I feel very troubled because there's not even a fraction, not a tiny fraction, of that kind of solidarity that I saw expressed and extended on the part of peace and justice movements in the United States. We didn't see that extension of goodwill and solidarity to people in Iraq or to people in Afghanistan or to people in so many other countries that suffer horribly because of the United States military interventions. Back home, you said you were working with the poor. Well, I, I was learning, and I um, it was kind of a, a social life in my area where I had moved to. There was... a soup kitchen two nights a week that a number of us would make sure was preparing a a good meal for about 300 or more people at night. And there there was a shelter that we uh, maintained and made sure that about 150 people would have a place to stay overnight. Uh, There was a house of hospitality and that these houses exist all across the United States. They did contacts with the Catholic worker movement. We had a, an alternative school for teenagers. It was just a wonderful time in terms of many projects that were needed and took up a lot of good energy. And I think there, what I saw form were relationships, good, healthy, strong relationships between the people who maybe had a little bit more to give because they'd been more fortunate in life and people who were... Uh, many times, either down and out on their luck, or they had fallen through the cracks of our society, or they they were people that for some reason were often turned away by other people, either in their families or sometimes in other institutions. And so it spoke to me a great deal about what can be possible in terms of community development and formation, when it's based on just the simple dynamics of personal relationships. And that's part one of a longer interview with U.S. peace activist Kathy Kelly. And in the next part of the interview, we'll hear about her moving to work 
with the people in Palestine, Iraq, Afghanistan and Kuwait during the 90s and right up to the present time. That's Kathy Kelly. The federal government has signed on to the US-driven Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, but it's yet to be ratified. This so-called free trade agreement was drawn up by 600 of the world's biggest and richest corporations. It will have enormous powers to remove hard-won regulations and protection of local jobs and industries, affordable medicine, the environment and our democratic rights. To find out more and get involved, come to a free public forum at 7pm on Thursday the 21st of April at the Lower Melbourne Town Hall, corner of Swanston and Collins Street in the city. Organised by the Trans-Pacific Partnership Unions and Community Roundtable, a 3CR supporter. Continuing what will be a series of interviews with people who have contributed to both the establishment and the continuation of 3CR as we celebrate our 40th birthday. Today we go right back to the beginning with Ian Bolton, who was known as Mario, a member of the first programming team on the Concrete Gang, which 40 years on is still going strong on Sunday morning at 9.30. Ian, can you first talk a little about the building industry back in the early 70s at the time 3CR was established in terms of the treatment of workers on the job, wages, conditions, the rights of unions, etc.? The conditions were poor. There was no long service leave. There was no sick pay. We were in the battle to get sick pay. We finally got 10 days. Well, we got eight days to start with, and then uh, we were the first in the industry to get it, the Builders Labourers Federation. So we got uh, eight days, and then it spread across the industry. We got ten. And uh, through that time, we had a, later on, we had a big battle and finally got superannuation, which was a portable superannuation. It was never heard of before, because at one time you didn't get any holiday pay, you didn't get any sick pay. Conditions were very poor in the way of amenities, smoko sheds, a lot of it was sitting on cement bags and very poor toilets that weren't hygienic. What about safety? Safety, well, those days, <laughs> I worked on Nauru House. Yeah, that's, what's that, 50 floors high? And we used to walk along the parapets on the top of the building to erect our scaffolding, and we, we had uh, swing stages over the side. And the parapet was about 18 inches wide. Mm. And on one side you had a 600-foot drop, and on the other side you had about a 25-foot drop into the machinery rooms on top. And we used to erect the scaffold, and then when we had to move it to the next corner, we would carry the big RSJs around the parapets, around this 18-inch wide parapet, just two of us carrying these RSJs with no protection at all. And all the steel erection, you didn't get ladders, you, you climbed straight up the columns, just shinned up and you walked on the steel and no safety harnesses or nothing. So that was the kind of conditions that we'd done. A lot of the blokes I worked with were there in the days when they used to ride on the loads of the crane as it was swinging around. So they'd only have one dogman and you'd stand on the load and you had a bell pull and you used to signal the, um, the crane with a bell pull and you used to get on the load on the ground, take it right up to the top 
swing the crane round, lower it down, jump off the load, undo the load, and you'd continue that all day long, just standing on the load, up and down, up and down, up and down. And these days they've got three dogmen, they, you know, they've got a dogman up the top, they've got the crane driver, a dogman up the top, and a dogman down the bottom, so no one needs to sling the loads. But that was a big battle, getting all that in. Was it also a battle to get unions on site? No, those days the unions were pretty strong and they, they were on site. The smaller sites used to jack up a lot, but no, the, the union was quite active in that, that respect. I think they've got uh, worse problems now with some of the things they're trying to do, you know, trying to get unions and the involvement because they're trying to get rid of unions completely in a lot of industries. So the unions were quite active, mainly the BLF. You know, they got most of the conditions. Other people would kind of sit back and ride on their backs, you know, the other unions. BLF done a massive amount of work, uh, you know, and a lot of time spent on the street trying to, uh, on strike, you know, 18 weeks in one strike. Can I ask you when you became involved in the industry and what, mm. a bit more about the work you were doing? I've always been in the construction industry, I've been at sea, but, uh, you know, I've done a hell of a lot in the construction industry. And uh, I worked in New Zealand, I worked in Melbourne to start with about 19... What time did it come? 1969, I worked on construction sites up in... Uh, my first job was in Mataranka, the uh, Roper Bar Beef Road from Mataranka to Roper Bar in the Northern Territory. And then I come down to Melbourne. I worked in Melbourne. I worked in Sydney. I worked in Brisbane. I went across to New Zealand for three years, worked on a couple of big pulp and paper mills over there. And then I worked up on the northwest when they were building the iron ore plants. That'd be about 1971. And I come back to Melbourne in 75, and that's when I, I joined the BLF and was involved in uh, the BLF. And up in Sydney. I was involved in the disputes they had up in Sydney when the, um, you know, they were trying to stop the, um, the rocks area from being demolished because the developers wanted to smash the whole thing. And so I was involved a bit in that. There was another theatre, a big theatre up in... Uh, Sydney they were going to demolish and uh, we black banned the demolition of that and we, we actually won the battle in the end on that one and the same with the rocks we, you know we've done a lot of um, black banning and uh, blockading the sites and things and uh, so we had a lot of early victories on those you know, I mean the rocks is a beautiful area now and it was only the BLF that st- uh, stopped it from being demolished so it's really important stuff. Okay well back to Melbourne how did the Concrete Gang program get off the ground? That started at a, a branch meeting in uh, Carlton, just a normal branch meeting, and it was mentioned by the Secretary, Norm Gallagher, that the Builders Labour is now a member of 3CR, which had just started. And he says, as a member, we're entitled to a radio program, and if anyone was interested, there'd be a meeting after the branch meeting and we'd see what we could do. So there's about... Four people took up their hands. Did he explain what 3CR was all about? I oh, said it was a, a community radio station. It was you know, just run by the community, and we were entitled to have a program. It was just starting, and you know people were sponsoring it. And so anyway, we there was about four people met outside, and uh, we decided to have a crack. None of us had been on the radio before, and we didn't all know each other. That you know we come from different parts of the industry. And then we had a meeting and we decided to put a program together. So um, that's how it started. But then you have to be trained. We had no training to start with. 
because we were doing it on a tape recorder and we'd just do it at one of the blokes' houses. And this was when it was out in Armadale before it moved to Collingwood. And that first station, I don't think they had the facilities for live then. It was So we used to take the programs in on a tape recorder. It was just on a little tape recorder at home at one of the blokes' houses. And we used to make the program and take it out to Armadale and uh, it'd be played whenever the, the time came up. So we didn't go live until it went to Cromwell Street, I think, in Collingwood. Did you help in that move from Armadale to Collingwood? Yeah, we done a lot of the help, a lot of the renovations of the building. You know, even got the painters' union involved, and I'd done a lot of the floor tiling in the studios. And we, we got help around the place. And yeah, and I used to do a bit of work on the transmitter, a bit of maintenance work on that. When that that was behind the uh, Collingwood Town Hall, the original transmitter. How many years did you do the program for, Ian? Well, we started. That would be. 76, 77, I suppose. I think probably about 82 or the 80s that uh, I moved on to other things. And uh, I appeared a few times after that as just a guest on the program. Um, you know, when the 10 years anniversaries and things like that, they'd get the old concrete gang back together. Now, everyone had a, a pseudonym. What was yours? I was Mario. You don't sound like a Mario. Well, the Scotsman with <laughs> an Italian name was... A part of multiculturalism, I thought. So. Well, there was a lot of Italians in the industry and there was a lot of Scots in the industry. I'm a Scot, so I picked the name of Mario to make it a multicultural thing. Talk about some of the, the people that you worked with over those years on the programme and some of the issues that you tackled. Well, there was a lot of general stuff, individual job sites, and if there was a, a dispute going on in one of the sites, we'd invite somebody down from that site to talk to it, so we got the direct information of what was happening instead of the lies that get put out in the, the national paper. They just say, oh, another strike, another strike. And you wouldn't know what it was about. So we explained, and not just ourselves, we'd get the individuals on the site down uh, and get them to talk to us, and they would tell us what the dispute was all about. So we were getting direct knowledge from all these different sites, and sometimes we get an organiser down, but usually it was a shop steward or someone from the site and we had a couple of people just from the industry that were good at music and we used to get them down with the guitars and they used to play the guitars and all fighting songs and you know rebel songs and things and uh, you know, we just make up the program from that. Tell us about some of your co-presenters. Uh, they, well there were a mixture, a real mixture. Uh, there was Rex McLean, he used to come down and play the guitar, he was very good, he was a scaffolder, worked with him on the art centre. Phil Court was another one. Uh, he was also a scaffolder rigger. Worked with him on... He was one of the boys on Nauru House where we used to walk around the parapets. Worked with him down in Loyang and other places. Another one called Desperate George, George Despard, who was a poet. He made his own book of poetry. And he'd come and read um, poetry on the radio. He's absolutely brilliant. Uh, Bob Mancor played a big part of it. He was... Um, and a South African, Canadian, Australian. And uh, he was very good on the guitar and knew other musical people, and he used to come down. John Cummins, um, because he was, originally he was a scaffolder himself and worked on the MCG and fell through the roof, the asbestos roof, and hurt himself pretty badly. Um, he used to come down sometimes, and, and he was very good, excellent fellow, very well respected in the industry. So it was a mixture of people. 
I mean, you had builders' laborers, and you also had students working in the industry, earning a quid. And one of them that was on the show, I looked him up a while ago, because I hadn't heard of him since the show. And uh, he'd written 14 books, and he was an internationally renowned ethicist, and he was a, a professor. You know, it's amazing what he must have learned in the building industry. The theme song, it's still being played. Who wrote that and who, who sang it? I can't remember the name of the bloke that actually wrote it. Bob Mancor and I think his wife sang it. Audrey, yes, yeah. I can't remember the name of the bloke who actually wrote it. And I think Bob had some input into that as well. Now, you're, you were broadcasting, but you're also doing other work, and you said about you were involved in the, in the shift from Armidale to Cromwell. You were also a member of the Committee of Management. What did that mean for you? Yeah, we worked on the committee for a couple of years. Yeah, that was very interesting, just, you know, which way the, um, the station is going and what were the issues of the day. And um, there was a lot of attacks on the radio station against it, yeah, one come from the Catholic Church. We were playing um, Frank Hardy's book, The Outcasts of Fulgara. There was, uh, it wasn't the Congregang that were playing that. It was one of the radios, the other radio um, programs, was playing excerpts from The Outcasts of Fulgara. And The Outcasts of Fulgara were actually the midnight men who used to get the garbage out. And when they come in the pub, they stunk. So they, they were the outcasts. So it was a takeoff of the... Um, the outcast in the Bible, so there were people screaming that it was, um, you know, it was blasphemy and all that, so we ended up having to go up and see Archbishop Little and uh, have a bit of a chat with him, because the complaint had gone to the Broadcasting Tribunal, and the Broadcasting Tribunal asked us to sort it out ourselves first, so we went and had a chat with him. And What'd you tell him? Well, we told him, that, you know, don't you like literature? You know, and uh, I mean, this is literature that had been in the public domain for a number of years. And, you know, what, what do you don't try to stop this kind of stuff? You know, so I think he was just trying to um, placate his parishioners that had complained. So it wasn't too bad a meeting. And, uh, <laughs> no more was heard of it. And then there was battles with the Jewish Board of Deputies. Because we'd got Palestinian programs on, they were claiming it was... Um, anti-Semitism, despite the fact that Palestinians are Semites themselves. And, uh, you know, they would do anything to try to stop anything that they didn't like to hear politically. And they were hearing the political side of Israel and Palestine that they didn't like. So um, they challenged us in the Broadcasting Tribunal, and it, it just got thrown out because they had no argument at all. It was It was just pure politics, and that's what... The radio station was all about, it was about putting uh, another side of politics on air, because one of the, the great principles of the radio station, which was actually in our charter to the Broadcasting Corporation, was that the radio discriminates in favour of those people that are discriminated against. So the radio favoured all those people that couldn't get their words into the mass media and couldn't get their ideas into the mass media and that's what we were doing the palestinians couldn't get their ideas across because the uh, the mass media wouldn't print them and because we were doing it the jewish board of deputies um, reared up and tried to stop us but they lost very badly in the broadcasting tribunal so it was an interesting time there was 
lot of those attacks going on in the radio station. It didn't stop the Board of Deputies, though. They kept on trying to keep get the station off air time and time again. Yeah, yeah, they, that's what they do. They, you know, they try to raise these issues. It's, it's, you know, they've got an arm of propaganda that tries to attack anything that kind of challenges the mistruths that they put out, you know, and it's a very deliberate tactic. And, uh, well, it didn't work because we're still there and we're still putting those programs to air and it's one of the few radio stations in Australia that put that side of the truth because the truth doesn't come out. What about the Master Builders? How did you get on with them, with your program? <laughs> well, the Master Builders were the opposition kind of thing and, you know, they used to listen, <laughs> listening themselves to hear what was going on because we often heard comments of the bosses. You know. Yeah, it was a battlefield, you know, because it was industrial disputes and they were the opposition you know, there was never any hard feelings. It was just we were trying to win conditions for the workers and uh, they were trying to get the job done as cheaply and as possible and safety cost money, so they didn't want to up supply any. Now, fundraising is still a, a major part of the concrete gang here at 3CR in 2016. What was it like back then? It was excellent, excellent. We used to have the, um, the Radiothon each year, and the amount of money that used to come in, it really showed that there was mass support uh, in the building trade for the program and that they really needed to have uh, people like us telling the story from the workers' perspective. And it wasn't just, you know, that the few people that actually run the radio program. It was the people that they got in, the guests that they got in from different jobs, and it was very widespread, and it was, it was good. And we had a, a really good listenership. And used to get a lot of comments about what had been said. At that time, it was terrific. You had the Wharfies had their own program, the Plumbers had their own program. It was great, and, and they put some great programs together. You know, the, the Wharfies in particular, they had some great old characters on there, Jack the Hat. Um, uh, there was a few. I can't remember all the names, but they were great. You know. Did you keep in touch with your fellow workers after you left the industry? Yeah, from, we've always kind of, from time to time, you know, like in the concrete gang, they used to, you know, any time there was something happening and they wanted to get somebody in, they'd, they'd bring us in for the, the celebrations. Yes, yeah. Have you got any particular memories of events and people? Things that happened on air, funny things that happened on air? Imagine George's poems must have... <laughs> Some of George's poems were a bit ribald at times, but we never had a problem with them. They were good, you know. One of his famous ones was... He was doing the Abbotsford Shuffle with a, along came a taxi with a blue light on top. The Abbotsford Shuffle is the, the stagger of a drunk, and the taxi with a blue light on top is a police car. <laughs> so there was a lot of, it was comical stuff, but there, there was no, um, yeah, there was no real problems with it. The main problems you got was people didn't like other people's political, having ideas politically that weren't in the mass media. That was where most of the attacks came from. And some of the people that you remember from that time? Your, your co-workers, some of the quirks of some of the others that you, that were on the program. Yeah, Rex McLean, uh, he was a great singer, and uh, you know, I worked with him, Scaffold, and he, I used to pick him up. He used to live in a boarding house in St Kilda, and uh, I'd pick him up, and he'd get a couple of uh, long-neck bottles from under the bed. This would be, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning, take him up to the studios, and he'd drink these two hot beers on the way up to the studio, and then he'd get on and perform with his guitar, and he had some great songs. A great character. Do you still listen, or are you too far away? 
I haven't heard it for a while because I live up the bush and we don't get a good reception. We used to get no reception at all at 3CR outside of Melbourne, but it has improved a lot. You know, you, you can hear it in some places in the countryside, which you couldn't before. So what do you believe working here at 3CR, how it changed you, what it did for you, Ian? Well, it was terrific because the people you're, you're mixing with, you know, Lil Bouquet used to do all the uh, listener sponsorships and her husband was on the... Um, the Warfies program is a great old character. You'd learn a lot from people like that. And having seen how you can have a radio station operated completely by volunteers and the people who are willing to spend their time on it. And some of the programs they had on, and I'm not on about the political programs, but you would get real enthusiasts on some of the, you know, whether it's brass bands or whatever, but you'd listen to them, and the people doing them were so enthusiastic, they would make you really enjoy the program because of their enthusiasm for the subject. So that was terrific on a lot of different uh, the different programs that were on. Are you coming to Melbourne for some of the celebrations? Yeah, I'll be coming down for the 40th anniversary. The Concrete Gang are putting a big thing together, and I'll, I'll be involved in that. Yeah, that'll be good. Great. I remember one time, because I used to do... Uh, station duty as well. One night a week you would, um, you know, assess all the programs, make sure there was no libel or, or anything like that, nothing libelous, nothing, um, you know, against the court or anything like that. And you, you would uh, pass all those programs and you'd just be sitting there. Uh, but if any problems come up, you had to deal with them. And the one night the jazz program was a great program and he was kind of professional jazz player that done it, but he used to like a few sherbets. And the one night he didn't turn up, and the previous program come to me and said, well, what's happening is the jazz bloke hasn't turned up. So I went into the, the library, and I just selected the jazz record I could pick with the longest track on it. There was one with a track about an hour long. So I put that on. It was by a band called New Cato or something, and it was all this avant-garde stuff. And uh, within five minutes, the phone rang and says, who's stuffing up <laughs> the jazz program. So I told him the story, and he said, oh, do you want me to come in and help? And this bloke just appeared at the station with a big bundle of records under his arm, and he put on the best jazz program we've ever had. He was an expert on jazz. He was a jazz producer. Didn't even know his name. And out of the blue, we got that brilliant program out of a disaster. So that was the kind of thing that used to happen at 3CR. Did working with the, the Concrete Gang and the BLF politicise you also? Well, I think it was already pretty politicised, but, mm. it, uh, you know, with the BLF, yeah, uh, out there and, you know, seeing a lot of the things that are happening, it, just your own work and experience does a lot of that for you. You see a lot of people killed and the circumstances are killed under and when there was absolutely no need for it. It's just greed, you know. They want to save a few bucks on supplying a ladder or something safety. And we're still seeing that today. Yeah, that's for sure. And if the unions go, it'll be even worse. That's right. It's just mayhem. All right, Ian, thank you, and I might see you around on the celebrations. No worries, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Bye. We're putting up new buildings, we're knocking down the old. We're walking in the summer heat and in the winter cold. And the labour power we sell me boys for a hard and weekly pay. 
produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA. And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji, we all of us are workers united, we must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land. We faced deregistration, it backfired in the face. We're not fooled by arbitration, we won't stay in our place. We hit the bosses hard and fast to win and keep our gains and break a couple of concrete pours to back our lug of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builder's labour is a name to make a man feel proud. And that was the Concrete Gang theme song. And before that, you heard Ian Bolton, one of the original BLs on the Concrete Gang here at 3CR way back in 1976. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Now on Tuesday Home Time, the monthly report from the Gene Ethics Network. And I'm joined on the phone by... Bob Phelps, who's the director of Gene Ethics Network. Bob, just in case there's people listening who haven't heard of the network, where did it start and what do you do? Well, Gene Ethics is a network of uh, citizens, uh, activists and uh, interested people in uh, halting genetic manipulation technologies and their products. We've been going since 1988 and uh, we're still here campaigning uh, particularly as there's a new crop of uh, genetic manipulation technologies now coming out of the laboratory. And what are they? Those are um, called by science uh, gene editing technologies. They're claiming that they don't need to be re- regulated. The same old, same old story that they're going to be so precise and safe that uh, our regula- regulators won't need to oversee them. But we're arguing that uh, the new CRISPR and ZFN technologies uh, will need to be uh, under the same sort of strict surveillance that uh, genetic manipulation has been under for the last 40 years. Just looking at how much GM there is in the world today and which countries it's in and what the situation is. Well, yes, we've just uh, recently got the latest uh, annual report of the uh, ISAAA, which is an industry front group that puts out annual figures about GM crop production in the world. And again, we see that the United States is by far the biggest producer of uh, genetically manipulated crops, uh, with Brazil, Argentine, Argentina, India and Canada as the follow-up ones. In fact, uh, those five countries grow around 90% 
of all genetically manipulated crops in the whole world. But for the first time this last year, the total acreages have actually gone down. So uh, this is a pleasing development, and I'd say now that uh, the market for genetically manipulated soybean, corn, canola and cotton seed has been saturated, and that we're going to see a long-term decline in the use of those technologies. Uh, they've created too many environmental, health and social issues around the world to now be continue to be viable. Those countries you mentioned, I think you said all of them are in the, the Americas. They haven't been able to get there. With the exception of India. That's right, with the exception and of China India. China is now growing more as well. It's uh, recently made a commitment to uh, developing new varieties of its own. And we believe that some genetically manipulated rice is being grown uh, in China already, but that is not approved and is illegal. It's interesting that Chinese shoppers have become very, very conscious of the safety of their food supply following the uh, contamination of infant formula with plasticizers some two or three years ago, uh, which disabled and killed several children. So the Chinese government has had to respond and uh, is uh, showing some signs of being much more cautious about it, what, what it does to the uh, Chinese and the global food supply because it's a very big now grower and exporter of foods to the world. Last week on the program I spoke with two anti-GM activists from New Caledonia and they were there speaking with you too, I believe. They're very concerned about the GM food coming from Hawaii. Yes, uh, Claire and Fred were in, uh, were in Australia for... Um, our annual uh, conference of all the uh, groups concerned about genetic manipulation technologies. Their principal concern is the, um, the GM papaya being grown in Hawaii, which is now, unfortunately, the seed is being smuggled around various parts of the Pacific, and it's believed that in Fiji, for instance, a lot of the papaya is now genetically manipulated. Again, it's illegal, but... Um, People see short-term benefits in acquiring this seed and planting it without official sanction. So they're campaigning very vigorously out of New Caledonia and around the Pacific. And we are looking over the next year or so to build a strong coalition with them as a result of their visit here uh, last week. Of course, papaya is a very small horticultural crop and it's a shame that its uh, seed is being spread around but the, the big time concerns of the broadacre soybean corn canola and cotton and now sugar beet which are uh, being grown by um, farmers uh, in those countries I mentioned. Just talk about a, an article that was in the, ma the mainstream media I think it was last week about a, a cluster of Parkinson's disease in the Western District of Victoria. What's known about that? Well, not much yet. It uh, appears that uh, some farmers are suffering from exposures to agricultural chemicals, and uh, we've been saying to the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority for a long time that they should do much more than simply mandate the instructions for use of toxins on the label. So the federal government sets the labelling requirements but uh, then passes the buck to uh, state governments and territory governments to enforce and monitor those uh, requirements. It's simply not good enough that uh, states which are not resourced really to, to do monitoring, testing and enforcement are given this job and that uh, I think many um, 
farmers, it's a pretty macho culture out there, may not either understand or strictly follow the instructions. And in the past especially, many have foolishly and uh, repeatedly exposed themselves to what have turned out to be um, carcinogens, teratogens, which uh, can cause childhood deformities and a range of other long-term health impacts, including what now appears to be the case, uh, a cluster of Parkinson's disease in the Western District. Those farmers have been speaking up for quite a long time, and finally, epidemiological study has been done which shows that there is more significant evidence of these health impacts. One would hope that some precaution, more precautionary measures would be taken now to protect not only the users of those chemicals but the general public because of course glyphosate for instance along with some other chemicals were reclassified March of 2015 as um, probable human carcinogens and we still see people in thongs and uh, shorts around our streets and near our children's playgrounds spraying Roundup the weed killer for instance very liberally in public places without any protection for themselves or passers-by or the children and animals that are um, using those areas. The development over the last couple of weeks has been that uh, the European Parliament had been asked to renew the approval for Roundup for 15 years. That's been downsized to seven and a much more precautionary approach to the use of, of Roundup is going to be taken in Europe where the spraying around playgrounds and other public places, particularly where children and animals congregate, is going to be very much more restricted and in some cases banned throughout Europe as a result of uh, the new evidence from the World Health Organization. Do you think people buying it actually realise what they're buying because it is available in gardening shops and things like that isn't it Roundup? Of course yes yes it is very generally available and uh, very easy to access of course the formulations that you buy in your local garden shop or Mitre 10 or Bunnings or wherever it is you (laughs) buy these things Those are 1% of glyphosate, which is the active ingredient, which is the chemical that's having the finger pointed at it over the health impacts. However, uh, farmers use um, formulations that are up to 40% glyphosate, and they are, as a result, much more at risk. And the World Health Organization found that those users are the ones who are being most dramatically impacted. It's also important to say, of course, that as a result of those very toxic and intense usages on farms, the uh, residues of uh, Roundup weed killer do remain in food. Urine testing around the world has now started to show up uh, residues in the human body as well. And indeed, 150 of the European parliamentarians are uh, at the moment having themselves tested to establish what their status in relation to glyphosate is as well. What can be the health impacts? Well, as the World Health Organization said, cancer is certainly one now very probably established impact. But of course, cancers take 20 to 30 years to be induced. So that's a very long-term impact. Shorter term, Toxicity, as we see, can um, lead to things like Parkinson's disease, probably, and other degenerative uh, disorders of all descriptions, really. Allergies are a commonplace uh, response as well when this is going on to the uh, skin and into the airways of, uh, of the users of these products, which 
can and do become airborne and can be breathed in if people are not wearing proper face masks or other respiratory protection. The trouble is, Bob, that there are so many chemicals in the air now that it's very hard to pinpoint one which is causing a problem. Exactly, exactly. And from multiple sources. I mean, even um, the exhausts from uh, motor vehicles, although the lead has now been taken out of petrol and that was one of the major health impacts from lead in paint and lead in petrol was phased out in the 80s, finally after a a long, hard campaign to get it removed. But particulates from diesel, for instance, are a a menace as well. Uh, We know that those nanomaterials, which are so small that they can get into the lungs and lodge and can also, of course, enter, are so small that they can enter individual cells, are a health hazard as well. We live in a chemical society, we live in a technological society and it's very hard to quarantine yourself from those things which in some cases, like the PCBs for instance, are everywhere in the world, are so long lived, get eliminated from the environment within the foreseeable future. We're talking centuries. We're in a chemical cocktail, we were never adapted to um, coexist with it. I can suspect pretty reasonably that many of the modern ills, including cancers, Uh, generated by our exposure to synthetic chemicals, the chemical revolution which really began during the Second and First World Wars when uh, the munitions industry began in earnest to uh, create toxic chemicals and then of course after the wars they were deployed to kill insects and unwanted plants in our food supply. That was the insanity of the whole thing. And we just forget, perhaps we don't forget, we certainly shouldn't, that uh, we were warned, you know, Silent Spring was written in the 50s and it was poo-pooed, but its messages are now coming home to roost. You mentioned earlier that China is producing GM rice. How much of that GM rice is getting into Australia and what do we know about it? Well, we don't know very much. If it is being grown in China and uh, certainly widely believed that it is, then it is being illegally grown. It hasn't been approved in China. But then, as I mentioned, uh, the Chinese government is trying to clean up the food supply there, but there are still many illegal things going on. It was reported in our Weekly Times here, the uh, main rural newspaper, uh, just this last week, that a lot of bad stuff is happening in the food supply and that our food authority and the food forum of health ministers who should be ensuring that our food supply is checked have at this moment at least no routine checking of Chinese rice coming into Australia. So if it's genetically manipulated at the moment no one will know. The Weekly Times also ran this story about the weak curbs on fake and falsified foods like the melamine which was a plasticised which was added to um, milk, infant milk uh, formulas in China and has seen a huge boost in demand for milk products from Australia. But a lot else is going on as well. We're at the moment arguing with our food authority and with the Food Forum about the labelling of irradiated foods, which is about to begin big time with uh, 24 fresh fruits and vegetables proved for exposure to the equivalent of up to 10 million chest X-ray equivalents of energy. At the moment, products of this process are required to be labelled, but the Food Authority and the Food Forum are exploring at the moment the removal of those labels because 
rather remarkably, they believe that without a label, shoppers wouldn't want to buy them. Well, as far as we're concerned, that's none of the food authority's business. If, if uh, a food producer wants to sell their product, they should label it. And we're asking the watchdog, the Australian Consumer and Competition Commission, that's responsible for ensuring that shoppers are not deceived and are fully informed through good labelling, take action now in defence of the irradiation labels because if they're removed, then a shopper in the fruit and veggie store or the supermarket is simply not going to be able to tell which food is irradiated, highly treated with high doses of radiation energy and which are the fresh fruits and vegetables. It has impacts on the nutrient value of food. It does leave radiolytic products in those foods it's simply not satisfactory that people will not be told if the irradiation labelling requirement is removed. How many countries irradiate their food? Well, around about 50 do some irradiation, although if this goes ahead, as we expect, we would become one of the biggest irradiators in the world. A lot of others irradiate um, meat in particular because uh, the handling of meat slaughter and so on raises the issue of salmonella. By applying larger doses of radiation, you can kill those microorganisms that can cause disease. But the argument of, I think, <laughs> ordinary people who still want to eat meat is, well, why not clean up the abattoirs? Why not have the process operating optimally so that we don't have to backtrack when things are unfit to eat and clean them up? Irradiation is a basically a clean-up technology whether it's to kill fruit fly, which is what they want to do in Australia, or should I say rather sterilise fruit fly maggots and eggs. You know, if that's what we're going to be doing, then the shopper needs to know about it. Is this just another byproduct of the nuclear industry? Get rid of some of their waste or what is it? Well, at the moment, Australia does use pure rods of cobalt-60, which are brought in from nuclear reactors in Canada. However, we have just talked to them and they've said that the irradiation industry here is going to phase out the nuclear materials coming from Canada. It's expensive. It means shipping radioactive material through our suburbs. It's all round not satisfactory. Of course, we don't disagree with them irradiating things like hospital equipment to sterilise it. But when it comes to our food that does have the impacts I mentioned, then it is unsatisfactory. It's unnecessary. There are many, many other options beside the toxic chemicals which were recently phased out by which farmers can manage the fruit fly problem and provide fruit as the organic industry does, which is healthy, fresh and doesn't pose the sorts of hazards that irradiation brings into the food supply, especially when it's unlabeled. What's happening in India with the cotton? Well, the Indian government, interestingly, has stepped in in the last few weeks to say that it will cut the royalties on the GM cotton seed being sold by Monsanto there by more than 70%. And if Monsanto doesn't like it, then it can just clear off out of India. This is a very understandable response to the um, large number of suicides among cotton growers in India who have got themselves into serious debt to pay for the expensive GM cotton seed, which they are not allowed to save for replanting the next season. This is a, a huge issue and a huge problem there, and the government is, is responding by saying that whether it's seed companies or pharmaceuticals, they're going to continue to regulate the price, 
They're not going to have their farmers and their citizens ripped off by foreign multinationals. And in fact, they're now moving themselves to develop their own GM varieties and their own generic pharmaceuticals so that they can be much more independent of the multinational corporations, which they see as charging unreasonable levels of, of royalties, which small farmers who have perhaps an acre of land at most simply can't afford to continue paying. And in Africa, a small country is also reacting against GM? That's so, yes, yes. Well, Burkina Faso, which um, was one of the, the world's premier cotton producers, embraced genetically manipulated cotton about a decade ago. It's uh, gradually, as it's been adopted, unraveled their cotton industry. The quality of the uh, cotton is now so um, degraded that uh, they're having difficulty selling their crop. The GM varieties simply haven't delivered on their promises. Cotton farmers in Burkina Faso are now suing Monsanto for $84 million, and the government is kicking Monsanto out of the country. From the next season, they'll be reverting back to their traditional varieties of cotton and trying to re-establish themselves as a quality producer, a reputation that they've lost over the last decade of growing the genetically manipulated varieties. It's a sad saga, but a lesson to the rest of Africa that genetically manipulated crops cannot and do not deliver on their uh, many glowing promises and that they can lead you into disaster. So we're hopeful that other African countries will sit up and take notice. And in Nigeria, for instance, this has created quite a storm of debate at the moment. The debate in Burkina Faso is loud and clear. GM is not wanted or needed in Africa. Thanks for that, Bob. And that's Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Gene Ethics Network. You are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR, where the time right now is eight minutes past five o'clock. If People Powered Radio exhibition is on now, get along to Gertrude Contemporary Gallery and enjoy this exciting collaboration. The exhibition features recordings, technological hardware, photos, ephemera and newly commissioned artworks by local artists which frame and interpret the station's history of radical broadcasting. A series of live broadcasts are happening every Friday in April direct from the exhibition space, talking sovereignty, troublemaking and music. Come and explore the politics of broadcasting, the experience of community and the station's radical history with Gertrude Contemporary Gallery and Art Space. 200 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, open Tuesdays to Saturdays from 11am. Exhibition finishes April 23rd. For more information, visit 3cr.org.au. The visit to the Western Sahara refugee camps in Algeria by the UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon in early March certainly had perhaps unforeseen repercussions. To continue analysing these, I spoke this morning to Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Kate, what is the latest on happenings in that area? Well, the Security Council issued a report about what had been happening 
in their meetings, which is actually rather unusual to have an account of, and the kind of detail they've given of uh, who proposed motions and who suggested amendments and all of that kind of thing. But the Secretariat is very clear that the situation at the moment is quite untenable because Morocco has taken upon itself the right to expel members of a mission that was set up by the Security Council. And a member state in general doesn't have that power, added to which Morocco doesn't actually have sovereignty in Western Sahara. That is the whole reason that the United Nations is involved. If it was clear-cut, there wouldn't be a need for a mission from the United Nations. So their action in expelling 73 members of the United Nations mission has very serious repercussions. What was the normal complement of people with Minusa? Well, the last report says that there are 212 members. Some of them are military observers. Some of them are actual troops that are observing the ceasefire and then there are uh, civilian members and according to the Moroccans they were only expelling the civilian support for the military mission. They didn't want to interrupt the monitoring of the ceasefire they said. That's a third of the number. It is. Well it's still yes exactly and that's why the Security Council say that it really can't operate without that component because they do the administration behind the military mission. And the the mission, the military component, are split between a number of different bases, most of them in very remote parts of the territory who probably don't have very good internet connections and that kind of thing, you, you know. So all of that administrative side is no doubt a lot more difficult for them. And they're out, on, they're out in their four-wheel drives, driving around. They're not sitting at desks. So they need other people who are going to be communicating with headquarters and doing all that sort of thing. Nevertheless, a fairly expensive exercise. Yes, exactly. And you would have hoped that they could have reached a more positive result after 40... Oh, no, it's not 40 years. Sorry, the whole dispute's been going for 40 years, but the United Nations part of it is... 25 years old. What would be the consequences for Morocco of this action? I think that Morocco were getting very nervous because the European Court of Justice had rejected the European-Morocco trade agreement in agriculture and fisheries products. This affected Western Sahara because a lot of the products would come from that territory, both the fishing and the tomatoes and melons that are grown now in the south of Western Sahara. The uh, trade agreement, uh, the the grounds for cancelling the agreement was that it included Western Sahara, which is not legally part of Morocco's territory. And uh, so this was a, a very big setback for Morocco. Since then, they have been finding all kinds of ways to make sure that no further advances are built on that success for the Sahrawi side. 
they have really been spoiling for a fight and they've been although uh, as soon as they heard that Ban Ki-moon was determined to try and find a solution to the long-standing conflict before he, his term of office finishes at the end of 2016, they were quite sure that they were going to make that not happen. And so I think that all of this is just trying to muddy the waters and mess up the UN efforts to find a peaceful solution. What's been the reaction within Western Sahara itself to what's been going on in the last month? Well, funnily enough, I haven't heard an awful lot of reaction to this in particular. I think that the Saharawis are very nervous that, you know, this this is a uh, serious blow to the efforts that they thought were going to be productive from the Secretary-General. There have, however, been a lot of other things happening in the Territory, and there have been protests by young unemployed graduates, one of them uh, who is actually not living in Western Sahara itself, but in one of the Saharawi towns in southern Morocco called Gilmim. They'd made some demonstrations in favor of young people getting work. He'd been taken into custody and tortured. Then he went on hunger strike and a number of others went on hunger strike in protest at the torture that he was suffering. I think during that time, he was beaten up by the prison in prison and apparently had a, suffered a blow to the head, which put him in a coma. His family say that he was transferred to hospital in Gilmim, but later transferred to hospital in Agadir, which is further north into Moroccan territory, and he died. And none of the doctors or medical staff did anything to try and revive or assist him medically, but he did he did die in hospital. The medical staff are very much under the some of the security forces in Morocco. That wouldn't be an unusual occurrence, would it? Someone dying in custody, or would it? Mostly not every day. It, it, it doesn't happen terribly often, but it does, I think, I can, you know, most years it happens once or twice a year that a young Sahrawi suffers in this way. And there was one last year, Aydala, whose mother went on hunger strike because they wouldn't return his body to her so she could have a family burial for him. So yes, these things do happen, but fortunately, fortunately not too often, but it's also sadly not, you know, has happened many times before. You spoke about the UN people being sent out. Yes. Also, Morocco expelled European lawyers who were there to support the political prisoners who were on hunger strike. That's right. In in Rabat, in in the capital of Morocco, in a there's a group of 22 political prisoners who've been sentenced to very long prison terms, ranging from 20 years to life, for their part in a mass protest back in 2010. The case was was uh, not really seriously made against them. They had very flimsy, or not flimsy, evidence. There was really no evidence. They were convicted on the basis of confessions that were made under torture or not even 
under torture, but they were just made to sign when they were blindfolded, and they never knew what was in these confessions. And then they were read out in court. They weren't allowed to bring their own witnesses. One of them was convicted of actions occurring on the day when he was already in custody because he'd been arrested the day before. All kinds of things were completely uh, out of line with that trial. So they want to have another trial, this time in a civil court because they shouldn't have been tried in a military court, they say. And the law has since changed in Morocco that civilians can't be tried in a military court. So they've been on hunger strike asking for that, but for the sake of their health, they called the strike off and a group of lawyers from Belgium, France and Spain arrived to give a press conference uh, in support of the hunger strikers, but they were arrested in their hotel and expelled the day before the scheduled press conference. And the reason given? Oh, they said that they'd come to uh, disrupt and, and cause trouble in the kingdom. But, uh, of course, if the, uh, if the Moroccan authorities had um, taken any notice of the hunger strikers, there wouldn't have been any need for, for them to come. It was only asking the Moroccan authorities to respond to the demands of their political prisoners that they... they uh, that's the only reason they needed to come was because they hadn't responded. And the hunger strike has ended and as far as I haven't heard if there's been any results from it yet. I suspect not because, as I say, at the moment Morocco is fighting for all it's worth and I think they're in no mood to give anything to anybody at the moment. Uh, another very... Uh, worrying development that I've only heard overnight in sort of breaking news which is not very it's, it's not news because it's been suppressed in Western Sahara is the news that they are crea uh, building a wall around the capital city it's a earth wall about two meters high and about 50 meters wide and uh, it extends uh, from the river around to the checkpoint on the road near to where the mass protest of Gede Mizik was held, uh, which is now a very sensitive area. They're very concerned. They have a military presence there the whole time to stop anybody treating it as a pilgrimage site or starting any new protests. And apparently uh, the plan is to encircle the town completely uh, just so that they can uh, control comings and goings more, I suppose. And perhaps this has been talked by the Polisario that they might go back to war. And so I suppose they would be having a second line of defense against a military attack. The report I've Red comes through a Sahrawi news service. They say they've spoken to some other journalists who are in the Moroccan loop, if you like, in, in, in their network, 
and they've been in, briefed about it, but they've been told strictly to keep it embargoed and not to publish any news about this war. What's been the response of the African Union to what's been happening in Western ah, Sahara recently? Yes, well, the African Union has been very supportive, I'm glad to say. They appointed a special envoy who would have uh, Western Sahara uh, as his remit, uh, and he's a former president of Mozambique, Joachim Shizano, and the president of the the current president of the African Union is a South African and very supportive also of Western Sahara. They've said that the um, Morocco should be forced to withdraw its demands for the Minerso people to have to leave the territory. They should be brought back and the whole mission reinstated and its work accelerated to provide the, the referendum of self-determination. So, yes, they've been very supportive. You mentioned before the Europeans and fisheries and tomatoes and melons coming from occupied Western Sahara. What's happening on the plunder of phosphate rock from Western Sahara? Yes, well, there's been a new report from the Western Sahara Resource Watch which shows that, in local terms, Australia has only one company still importing, which is Insatec Bifid, based in Melbourne, with manufacturing plants in Portland and Geelong. They had a shipment in January that went to both places, and so they are still actively importing. New Zealand also is importing to its two pharma uh, cooperatives called Ravensdown, mostly based in the south, and Balanced Agri-Nutrients, mostly based in the North Island, I think. But they're not companies listed on the stock exchange, so it's not quite so easy to uh, work with them. The local activists have written to them, and they have written back saying that they think they're okay and they don't plan to change their practice, so they're still on the list. But the biggest importers by far are the Canadians. There's two big companies, one called Agrium and the other is Potash Corporation, and they are getting something like a third of all the phosphate, I think, coming from Western Sahara. Those are, that's the area that Western Sahara Resource Watch needs to focus on now to try and uh, help them to understand the dangers of, of engaging in this very risky trade. But people are concerned with ethical trading for these companies. I'm not sure how much. They must be. Uh, I mean, all companies these days like to say that they have, that they have corporate responsibility for their for their actions and all of that, but they've been sold the line by the Moroccan phosphate company that it is ploughing all the profits back into the territory and they I don't know whether they really believe it or if they just are happy to use that smoke screen behind which they can keep importing. Perhaps they need to go to the occupied territories to have a look for themselves. Yes, that that would probably be good if they could do it independently and not just be shown around by the Moroccan uh, businessmen. But, yeah, 
one one uh, achievement though is that Lithuania has with the company based in Lithuania the name's just gone out of my head but anyway uh, they have um, stopped importing and and that's that's very important because um, they were quite a big importer as well and I think Lifosa they're called if Lifosa I think that there could have been also a change in in Venezuela because one of the companies that had been in Spain which was linked to that international company was still on our under observation list rather than having given up and now they've said that they are definitely not lo- no longer involved so that there are fewer and fewer reputable companies engaging in this trade meanwhile with the oil there's some of them have given up but then they are reapplying to get their blocks back again I I've heard so that's rather hard to negotiate at the moment you know you can't quite tell whether they're coming or going and uh, at the moment one can't say they're going because they might be coming back in terms of the uh, Cosmos oil and uh, San Leon the companies that have been where there's been big demonstrations in the occupied territory despite all the risks that they run and so yes i i I can't say what's what's happening really really with that but the in general the plunder continues and that has to be one of the reasons that morocco wants this to keep hold of this territory well finally kate i suppose what we should do is keep an eye on what the united nations are going to do about all this absolutely because that's crucial and the difficulties for the present Security Council is that there are three strong allies of Morocco on the Security Council, not just France, but they're supported by Senegal and Egypt, and in some cases Spain, the former colonizer, has been voting on the Moroccan uh, side. So it has been a way of stymieing the action of the Security Council when there is very strong dissent. They don't like moving against that even if there's a majority against it they like having consensus and this is what unfortunately renders the whole thing of international law fairly impotent unfortunately it will be interesting to see what happens because it is a very unusual situation to have member states opposed to what the secretary general is wanting to do and what the whole Security Council has in previous times voted should happen. So, yes, we will have to wait until the end of the month to see what transpires, Jan. OK, Kate, thanks for that. Right. And that is Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. Right, and gentlemen, this panel is now on air. In July 1976... From an old warehouse in High Street, Armadale, 3CR Community Radio hit the airwaves, heralding 40 years of independent, community-owned and controlled radio. This will be the first station owned and operated by a cooperative of community organisations on a Melbourne-wide basis. This is 3CR. As the status quo of old media is challenged, as publications come and go, in a country with the highest concentration of media ownership in the world, 3CR continues to broadcast radical, insightful radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
we're not talking about land rights. We're talking about sovereignty. That's why it's important for us to be at the 10 Embassy. From the protests against the Franklin River Dam to the 1998 waterfront dispute, from the east-west tunnel picket to the Aboriginal 10 Embassy, the history of 3CR is dynamic and passionate and ongoing. I was born here. I will die here. I am not moving. So as we celebrate 40 years in 2016, we ask you, our volunteers, listeners and supporters, to join in in saying... Happy birthday, 3CR! The Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, or APAN, advocates for the right of self-determination of the Palestinian people in a viable and democratic Palestinian state to raise awareness of the Australian public and their leaders by providing accurate information concerning the Palestinian people and their rights to support capacity-building initiatives of institutions and civil society in Palestine, to encourage, coordinate and build the capacity of organisations which pursue the above objectives in Australia, to foster alliances between organisations which pursue the above objectives in Australia and the international community, and to do all things incidental to attaining of the above objectives. And one way to achieve this is through their study tours, usually visiting Palestine, Israel, Lebanon and Jordan. And participants are encouraged to share their experiences on their return. One such person is Mary Brabenik, who was part of the most recent tour. First Mary, you're no stranger to this area of the world, but it was a long time ago. Yes, I had been in my early 20s. Back in 1970-71, as part of sort of extensive overseas travels, I'd spent three or four months working on a kibbutz in Israel. What was the inspiration or the, the motive for going this time, Mary? Well, it was because I suppose whilst over the years I hadn't given a lot of thought to what had been happening in that part of the world, about 15 years ago, I became interested and increasingly concerned, I think, or aware of the plight of the Palestinians and concerned about the situation, which seemed to be escalating. And it was an opportunity to go to learn, to try and understand what was going on over there, the situation. Well, a study tour just afforded me an extraordinary opportunity. It wasn't just me being a tourist. It was me being over there and visiting with people, you know, who could educate me as to what I was seeing and what, in fact, was going on. Where do you touch down? Where's your first stop? We flew from Melbourne to Beirut and had 48 hours, or yeah, I think so, maybe three days in, in Beirut, during which time the group you know, got together. There were a dozen of us, and some had flown in earlier, and we'd come from various states of Australia. So we met there, and then during that time we visited a very extensive refugee camp on the outskirts of Beirut, and then from there we flew to a man in Jordan and we then went in by sort of vehicles overland through the Allenby Bridge, the land border that Jordan has with Israel. What was it like in the refugee camps? I've spoken to people before and they're, they're really shocked at the conditions there. Yeah, absolutely extraordinary. The camp had been set up in 1948 when the first wave of Palestinians were forced out of the country 
and there are still 30,000 people living in one square kilometre, which is a frightening prospect. It is incredibly dense. It is tiny alleyways and ramshackle buildings that have just been built up and up and up without foundations, of course. They started off as single storeys and they've just gone up and from time to time I gather they collapse. A couple of years ago I was in South America and these reminded me a bit of the favelas in Rio, but these were far more primitive and yeah, very desperate living conditions. Who did you speak to while you were there? In the Camping Bay route we spent much of the day with Palestinian women's groups who organised schools, um, hospitals. We were taken to, the school was extraordinarily basic, it was four or five rooms sort of in an apartment block I would it would be the equivalent here the top room was the play area which was about the size of an Australian a large Australian rumpus room and that was for about 50 children at any one time and it was just peeling walls and very damp and it had a sort of an inside swing jungle gym arrangement and a few plastic chairs it was just tragic the lack of facilities and rooms full of small children maybe five or six classrooms of primary no under eight these children were sitting on the ground it was cold they were all wearing coats there didn't seem to be any indoor heating and they were being taught in arabic and english in order to get them bilingual in the hope that they might be able to get into united nations schools and then we also visited a home for disabled kids which had some funding from the some regional British library I noticed on the wall, but two two walls of the room they were in were open to the elements and it was bitterly cold. And there were a range of disabilities. There were children with Down syndrome, there were children with various levels of spasticity and so on and so forth. It was fairly horrifying, though they were very proud of what they had. And a child who had was themselves a cancer sufferer hooked up to venous line was playing a drum I, I just just you know they were sort of skeletal a kid of about 13 I don't know that was the music so I found it pretty horrifying though these Palestinian women were incredibly positive and they run all sorts of organizations for you know women who knit and sew and get together and cook jointly and look after babies and try and help each other I suppose a lot of it is up to the women because the government of Lebanon supports very little, these refugee camps. Yes, absolutely. And so the women are, you know, very much running the show. And, I mean, I was amazed how many of them had very extensive tertiary qualifications, you know, and studying for PhDs and, and supporting each other so that somebody's daughter could be supported through university and in the hope of somehow bettering their lives. Where do they go to university? That was hard to work out. Some of them, I gather, it was only afterwards, we, you know, we sort of thought to ask some of those questions. Some of them had managed to do it outside the country with support from organisations, you know, um, charity-type organisations. Some within the country, I gather, within Lebanon, but I'm sorry, I, I don't have the answer to that. Where does the food come from for the refugee camps? I guess they buy it from outside. I mean, within the camp, we saw basic, you know, we think, you know, the butcher shop and, you know, the, we saw bakeries and things like that. So the suppliers are, are brought in and, and they prepare their food from what they buy in. I think they just prepare it themselves. I mean, there were a few tiny, you know, little hole-in-the-wall grocery-type shops. 
What sort of food did you eat while you were there? Traditional food, which was gorgeous. Lots of rice and lamb, I expect, was the main meat. Lots of lovely spicy bits and pieces, falafel and, you know, flat bread and fresh vegetables and, you know, those sorts of things, which were all very nice. Some sweet, little sweet, cakey, you know, baklava-type sweets with, you know, nuts and honey. Were people there confined to the refugee camps or they have movement outside? They aren't confined, but movement outside is not really possible because there's no there's nowhere for them to go and they don't have money or transport. A few of the kids, you know, young men had sort of small motorbikes, so I suppose they could go from A to B, but, I mean, they're, no, they're not confined, they're able to go. But I did ask one of the women... We were going later on, or later that evening, we were going down just to have a look at the waterfront. And I asked about that, and she said, oh, many of the children have never been there, but there would be no point in us taking them there, even if we had the money to get them there. We don't have enough money to buy them an ice cream or or for them to do anything when they get there, so it's probably better not to even show that to them. It's quite extraordinary to think that, you know, in a city like Beirut that these people are are sort of, yeah, they're worse than second or third class citizens. It's it's so tragic. And and to be completely stateless without passports to any country and the prospects are so grim. Do you find the men standing around with nothing to do because there's little work? I didn't see that, no. I can't say that was sort of particularly evident. Perhaps there were places they went, I don't know. And once again, it wasn't a question I thought to ask at the time or even something that concerned me. There certainly seem to be children everywhere. And, you know, I mean, of course, when, when a group of foreigners are wandering through your streets, of course, they're keen to engage with you in some way. And so, you know, kids are being kids are always wanting to have their photo taken or to hold your hand or speak English or what have you. And we also visited within the camp, we also visited a few individual families and their living conditions were, once again, a large number of people living in incredibly confined spaces, you know, like eight and ten sleeping in a room at night, um, and all just on the floor, obviously, on sort of little roll-out mattresses. And then the day, those being rolled up, and they sit there, and that is the play area and the eating area and the, the living area for large families, extended families, you know, mothers, brothers, sisters, aunties, and so on. Grandparents still there? Some, yes, yes. And and we met some people who'd been in that camp since 1948. So, you know, people who, who, who were still holding the keys to their homes in Palestine with the hope somehow that they might one day return. Tell me, some of the women, what they spoke to you about, what their aspirations were, I suppose, or what their fears were more. There's been, their aspirations in every case were that there would be peace and that they could, I mean, outside of... Israel, you know, outside of Palestine, those we met would speak about returning. We just want to return. We want to be able to go back to our land, to our homes. And then within Palestine itself, those we met who'd been displaced from villages also spoke about the right of return. So that was a very big topic all the time. They asked us to please tell the world about their situation. They were aware of the fact that sort of the world's sympathies currently lie with the Syrians and they recognised that these people at the moment sort of had priority in a sense. But nonetheless, a couple of them in sort of desperation said, but we have been here a very long time. You know, the world has forgotten us. We are still refugees. 
I'd imagine mental health problems must be pretty horrendous. I think so. And, and increasingly, the other thing that women said, a couple of women said to me, up until now, the last 20, 30 years, somehow there's been more hope. But as hope diminishes, we are getting more and more concerned about our young men particularly, that they will, you know, become violent. And so, you know, I, I, can, I can't begin to imagine the the depth of mental health problems but once again it wasn't an area we talked about I saw no evidence I mean I happen to be a nurse who has worked in mental health and I don't know any of any specific institutions or care or treatment I think anything there would be very limited. Next of Jordan there's a lot of Palestinians live in Jordan? There are but I'm not familiar with how many I don't really know much about what the situation in Jordan I mean certainly there are camps in Jordan as well but we didn't visit them and nor was that. We went through, we cut through Jordan, we went because we were going overland. The tour was, I suppose, essentially to Palestine and so we, we weren't visiting Israel as such, we weren't, so we entered via Jordan. And then on our way out back, we flew out of a man home, but we did a side trip to Petra, but that was probably the only what I would call tourist day of the whole, you know, trip. And that was, you know, very exciting and wonderful to see, but... We weren't, we weren't there to be tourists. We were there to try and understand the Palestinian situation. Were there any difficulties getting into Palestine? No, other than, you know, extensive times at borders. I mean, more than one would normally expect travelling into overseas countries, and I travel a lot, and much of it to sort of slightly difficult places. I don't think I've ever spent as long at borders, but, you know, for their own reasons, that's what's required. How far into... Palestine we were able to travel or how widely in Palestine we were able to travel? Widely within the West Bank we weren't able to go to Gaza that was a disappointment because that had been on our agenda and it was a day-to-day thing in terms of you know you might find out today whether you're in or not and right up until the last couple of days we were still hoping but uh, the Israelis did not permit us to go there and there's no reasons given But we travelled extensively, you know, we went to Ramallah and Hebron, we travelled to the Jordan Valley, we travelled, you know, we stayed in East Jerusalem. Uh, We went up north to Nazareth and stayed overnight there and we visited Haifa on the coast in the northwest and and we also went to Bethlehem. So they were the areas we had visited and it sounds a lot, though it's not, I mean, it's, it's not a great distance, any of it, I mean, other than the trip up north. The West Bank area is really quite small, but particularly by Australian standards. However, it doesn't seem like that because there are extensive border crossings, internal border crossings within the occupied West Bank. And also the separation wall, which covers, seems to snake in and out and around lots of towns, makes getting from A to B a, a very difficult exercise. You know, we, we went through these huge underground tunnels, which they're building and this is to keep, separate the Palestinians and the Israelis. And then, you know, I know, for example, going the road from Bethlehem to Jericho, I think it's the oldest road in the world, or certainly connecting a couple of the oldest cities in the world. You know, the separation wall cuts straight across the middle of it. So driving from A to B is not an easy exercise. I'd imagine you'd seen plenty of photos of the, the wall, but in reality, how did it strike you? It was absolutely horrifying. On the outskirts of Jerusalem, we looked down and we saw an area there where they were building more of it. And it's just, it is just so incredibly, 
it's much higher than the Berlin Wall. It is massive. And there's these horrible guard towers every so often. And it's smack bang up against people's houses. And, oh, it's horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. It is enhanced by some extraordinary graffiti. Some by Banksy, the very famous British stencil artist. But I don't know, you know. And there was a few wonderful things we saw in relation to the war. One was an area where some enterprising Palestinian had painted a big area of white on the wall and they were projecting the World Cup onto it when it was on. So that was his outdoor cinema. I thought that was rather clever. Little to smile about at any stage. Tell us about some of the the people you spoke with and what they told you about what their lives are like on a daily basis. Well, for example, in the Jordan Valley, we visited with some people who live there. There's not many Palestinians living in the Jordan Valley. It's now considered to be, I think, a sterile area is the... uh, Sterile of Palestinians is the Israeli term for it because they've been essentially been removed. But we met with some people who lived in a very ramshackle village and the man was very interesting and he showed us the conditions of their life and we saw the rivers that have been diverted to these sort of modern aqueducts that go to pumping stations so that the water can be supplied to the new Israeli settlements that have been built in the Jordan Valley and the villagers have to buy in their water in in tanks And we just saw the incredible difficulties of their life in the current situation. We also saw but didn't speak to Bedouins who've been also have lost their lands in the process. And so tents and goats and families with lots of children living camped literally beside the freeways, which is sort of horrifying. It's apart from the fact that it's very dangerous, I would think, with small children and animals there. But what they just spoke about was the hope that somehow a a peace could be negotiated and seemingly that the two-state peace process would be the only hope. But how, I don't know, we met with politicians, members of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, Palestinian politicians, and they were very optimistic. However, it seems that their optimism is at odds with what you're seeing. I just became increasingly distressed in the West Bank area where almost every hilltop seemed to have a new settlement on it. And they are very, very extensive. I think what I had imagined was something much smaller and much less permanent. But these are like massive housing estates. And I'm talking, you know, 10, 20,000 people living in very, very solid-looking houses, two- and three-storey properties, cheek by jowl, hundreds of them. And every bit of vacant land seems to have been annexed in some way and just one wonders how it's possible for a peace to be negotiated when there is so much that has already gone. You know, fields of olive trees, we saw a couple of those where the trees had been chopped off at about the three-foot level and bare fields on either side. So it was hard to understand how this could have been done for, and I quote, security reasons. And large trees. I'm not talking saplings. I'm talking trees that have been there for decades. Did the people talk about the difficulty of getting their children to school and back? Yes, yes. And we saw, I think in Hebron, there's an area there where they have, where there's a whole deserted neighbourhood, another one of the secure areas of the sterile zones. And the people who live sort of in that area are now no longer able just to cross the street so they walk 
miles, you know, and I'm talking two and three miles. Kids have to go to school to go around this area that has now been shut off to them. You know, the, the shops are just shuttered and it was just completely vacant and desecrated. Stars of David spray-painted on the fronts of the shops and things like that. Horrifying stuff to see. Horrifying. What did you see of Palestinian culture? We saw family life. We had dinner with a Palestinian family. We saw some of the women with crafts, doing traditional crafts. I suppose it was really just family life and those sorts of things. And we saw their desire to, you know, and a little evidence, we saw farm, still farm the land as they had done for generations with their olive groves particularly. That's possibly all I can say I saw. Did you speak to any Israeli peace activists? Yes, we did. We met with some of them and they were one particular young man who accompanied on us on our trip to the Jordan Valley. He was a young Israeli lawyer who did say, you know, there comes a time, he was a man I suppose in his late 30s, and I gather he had a wife and a couple of children, and he just said, you know, it would be easier for me just to move into one of the settlements and live a comfortable life where I had the facilities that the settlements offer. They have cinemas and schools and gymnasia and, and things like that. And he said, you know, the struggle to be an Israeli fighting it from within is really difficult. He said, you know, because it seems as though it's like trying to hold back the tide. But he said, I don't have an alternative. I feel this is what I must do in conscience. Our group of 12, for example, our tour group contained, we had two Jewish people in the group, one of whom is a professor from the University of New South Wales. He's a, a Jewish voice for peace in Australia. And the other one is a young university student who's an Orthodox Jew from Sydney. You know, they were very much Jewish voices for peace. And there were a couple of other Israelis we met with. I'm sorry, I can't recall. I think one of them was to do with house demolitions. He was involved with an Israeli group that were trying to advocate legally for people, you know, with house demolitions. And I recall him saying to us, we met with him in Haifa, and I recall he said to us, somebody said, oh, how successful have you been? Because a couple of the members of our group were lawyers. And he said, how successful have you been? He said, oh, we've never won a case. I found it quite extraordinary that you could say that and yet get up tomorrow and do, do it all over again. But I suppose... Such is the nature of people who are giving their lives for a cause. How often was BDS mentioned? It was mentioned a little bit. One member of our group was involved with BDS here, I think, uh, in, and not I think, he's from Adelaide, and certainly one man spoke to us about it. I still am not quite sure of, you know, how uh, the effect of, of sanctions, but... You know, we saw with South Africa how the world can make a difference and have a country change its policies if there's enough pressure brought to bear. And so it wasn't mentioned a lot, though, as I said, one man... I mean, we had various... People came and spoke to us about various things, and one man spoke about that. But I'm sorry, I wasn't very educated. or I didn't know much about it at all before I went, and I'm still not I'm 100% certain of how it all works and how... One can have an effect. You know, companies like SodaStream were mentioned, but I'm yet to research that. What other issues were people talking to you about, people who came to talk to you? We've had people speak to us about the wall, the apartheid wall, the problems with checkpoints. Just, I think, issues to do with things like health and education. 
there are ongoing problems, house demolitions. What was East Jerusalem like? East Jerusalem was, I mean, fabulous. I mean, Jerusalem itself is the most extraordinary city because it, it is so dear to Christians, Jews, Muslims, and I think, you know, the old city of Jerusalem is quite extraordinary and East Jerusalem, where we stayed, was, you know, vibrant and busy. But very obviously the enclave of the Palestinians in terms of services, the pavements were broken, the roads were messy and grubby, and yet, a couple of hundred yards away, I mean, there was, a, there was a marked difference, and it was only when we went to visit the Knesset. We didn't go to West Jerusalem, you know, to, at all, really. We were visiting other places in the West Bank. But we did go to West Jerusalem or out of East Jerusalem when we went to the Knesset, and it was extraordinary, the difference. It was like going from sort of the slums across to a very fancy neighbourhood, you know, in terms of, you know, tree planting and, yeah, pavements, the sorts of things you expect that a city council will look after. All in all, Mary, what was the highlights of the trip? For me, Jerusalem was something of a highlight. And visiting Hebron, for example, and the Jordan Valley, but it was sort of more lowlights than highlights, I'm afraid. To be there is, is quite extraordinary. Now you're back. It's a responsibility to educate other people to what you saw? I believe so. And like a pebble, you know, in a pond, whilst I'm, I'm not out there preaching, you know, on street corners, because I've been there recently, people have asked me and they ask questions and this, the same sort of questions I'm still asking myself. What's it like and is it true and does this really happen? And I did see some shocking things. I did see, we in Hebron, we saw an episode where soldiers shot at some kids. That's horrifying. That's the sort of stuff of newsreels. You know, I saw the wall. We stood for a very long time at checkpoints whilst Israeli guards, whom we could see, watched television. For no apparent reason, we were kept standing there, and you think this sort of behaviour causes people to become, you know, it caused me to become frustrated, and, and these people have been, what, half a century pretty much under occupation. And, you know, whilst nothing excuses terrorism, you can understand just how, you know, angry and despairing you can become. And I suppose I can just hope that to ask people to, you know, if they have occasion to speak to, you know, local members of parliament, I would like that Australia's position on it became a less Israel-centric or Israel-orientated. I'd like that, you know, perhaps we had representatives who were required to, you know, visit there and have a look, visit Palestine, because our press tends to be very orientated towards Israel, and that's pretty concerning. And thanks to Mary Brabrenik talking about her recent visit to the Middle East, to Palestine, Israel, Lebanon and Jordan as part of the APAN study tour. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. 
These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The federal government has signed on to the US-driven Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, but it's yet to be ratified. This so-called free trade agreement was drawn up by 600 of the world's biggest and richest corporations. It will have enormous powers to remove hard-won regulations and protection of local jobs and industries, affordable medicine, the environment and our democratic rights. To find out more and get involved, come to a free public forum at 7pm on Thursday the 21st of April at the Lower Melbourne Town Hall, corner of Swanston and Collins Street in the city. Organised by the Trans-Pacific Partnership Unions and Community Roundtable, a 3CR supporter. I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. And that's it for me for today. No done by law tonight. But you'll be listening to Accent of Women. And I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. So it's bye for now.